Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. Welcome to episode 12 of Plan B Security. Now, I'm a little bit late getting this one out there, but I think it's all for the right reasons. Past couple weeks, I've been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of training, a lot of teaching, a lot of learning. Uh, definitely emphasis on learning. When I fly, if I'm not doing some sort of work or trying to catch up on work, I'm always listening to some sort of audiobook. Um, you know, in the work from home life, the transition, I used to be in the car for three to five hours a day. And during that time, I used to sit there and just stare at the ocean, love seeing the dolphins off the PCH heading down to Los Angeles. And, you know, like that was my commute from up in the mountains. And, you know, what was a better way of spending that time than trying to better yourself, learn, grow um, some of the best books I've ever listened to? Because, you know, I have dyslexia, so it makes it really hard for me to read. But since working from home, I've picked up a lot of bad habits and a lot of those is not having time for myself anymore. I pretty much work about, you know, between 14 and 18 hours a day, it feels like. So when I travel, you know, I'm on the plane, I usually try to use that for myself of, of you know, listening to these books. And remember, because everything is a story, the more stories you listen to, the better you learn how to communicate. Or at least that's how I sort of uh, reason it in my brain. And you know I love a good story, especially if you checked out episode 10, uh, which was selling security through storytelling. And if you want to communicate effectively to different audiences, you have to be able to speak from their perspective. That's how you captivate them. That's how you catch them. That's the hook line. And then the sinker is the content that you're trying to deliver. Now, why am I telling you all of this? And it's because I, I connected some dots when I was listening to this book. It was Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, and, you know, I am a, a firm believer in that extreme ownership. And, and it's funny because, you know, since I was, you know, 18 years old working in corporate America, um, you know, dealing with the, the technology of, of, you know, big companies like Verizon Wireless, you know, with 100,000 employees and hundreds of millions of subscribers using services, data services, voice services, whatever kind of services offered by them at any given moment in the day, delivering 911 messages and phone calls, um, you know, handling the emergency response communications for a lot of these catastrophic uh, events that kept popping up around, uh, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and everything like that to, you know, first responders figuring out how to get to the location trying to use some of these 4G and 5G technologies to get a little bit more visualization into some more of like, you know, fires by fire departments using drones and cameras to, you know, your police officers uh, being able to receive and respond to a call with the quickest efficiency in the route. Just all this, this type of stuff, you know, some people are like, oh, well, you know, whatever, why does that really matter? Um, but like at the end of the day, you know, people's lives are on the line. And, and the second that you disqualify that, I, I you know, I, I think you're starting to do a lot more of a disservice um, to society. And keeping people connected is such a big deal. I started my career in a place where everything I was doing was based off of a risk. And I had no way of turning that risk into an enablement. Like if I was going through a mop, uh, what we called methods of procedure. So think of that as like your playbook for some sort of systemic change. Um, you know, I'd be trying to turn on interfaces on a firewall or, you know, reconfigure some sort of routing uh, on the back end. And when we're going through this, we can cause these links to drop. We can cause, you know, these calls to drop. We could stop deliverability of 911 um, text messages, you know, anything going across those networks. 
just because of a simple misconfiguration, you know, and this was many, many, many years ago at this point, but it's like, you know, the, the scale and the risk to some of these changes, we had to make sure that we tested it, tested it, tested it and tested it again. You know, we had a full lab that, that almost mimicked each one of the, uh, different, what we called, um, like switch offices. So in that way we can make sure that if we were putting some new hardware in that we can mimic it. Uh, in a way that we could test these changes, uh, you know, down to the, you know, the IP address. If we had to, you know, overwrite some of the Mac addresses, we could even do that if we needed to. If, if for some reason we thought, hey, this version of this, uh, you know, routing engine can't handle this type of Mac address because, you know, it's got F and E in, in the last 11th and 12th place, of the Mac address. Like we've seen bugs like that happen. And to most people, they're just like, oh, whatever, you know, it's not my problem. But like having that opportunity really allowed me to get put into this mindset of like, hey, here is a risk. How am I making sure I'm mitigating this risk? And that's where a lot of the testing came from. Now, as I grew, I moved a lot more into risk enablement. So how do I identify a risk and how do I turn that into something better? And it's funny because, you know, a couple of weeks ago I was giving training um, to some of our uh, IT companions. And, you know, one of the things I was doing was I, I was highlighting risk enablement. So a scenario could be, hey, you know, for PCI and different compliance uh, purposes, we have firewall fully enforced, very locked down, and we don't allow people to turn it off. Now, if you're an iOS developer, uh, you're probably trying to use something like Charles Proxy or Burt Proxy or, you know, one of the things in between. So then that way you can communicate and capture the traffic in between the mobile device because, you know, these... Um, simulators don't go 100%. Um, it, it just, it, it will never be, you know, a substitute for a true device. Maybe just for some basic testing, but once you want to get that that true usability testing, that true experience on the device, uh, and test some more of your dynamic libraries uh, and, and the way that the application actually gets executed, you need a real device to do that. So, you know, sometimes you need to see the traffic between the device and the server. Uh, and a lot of times that test server and the device are connected to your computer. When the firewalls are fully enforced, um, is, you know, even if you did some sort of signing policy or anything like that, you know, I've worked at a lot of places where we've just 100% enforced that firewall. So that's the risk, right? If the firewall is not enabled, um, number one, we risk failing some sort of compliance requirement for like things like PCI. But I've also seen it where some developers don't understand the difference between binding their local web server to localhost 127.0.0.1 or whatever uh, compared to like quad zeros, right? 0.0.0.0. That means that you're advertising on all interfaces. So that means that if you're in a Starbucks and, you know, there's no client isolation running on that access point and you have this dev server running on your laptop, somebody runs an MMAP scan, they're going to find your service. Now they're going to be able to iterate your service. And one thing that I will always have a problem with is a lot of these third-party libraries that these developers use, they're never actually looking at the contents of the libraries. They just think, okay, well, somebody else did this. Uh, it's good enough for me, right? Good enough for government work is that little trope I always used to kind of <laughs> reference, but like it's not. And, you know, what you start to see is you start to see these um, supply chain vulnerabilities start to pop out there where these third-party libraries that people are trying to use are infected with, you know, a shell out, a reverse shell, something. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be running this, but at the same time, you don't know what that code is doing. So if you don't know what that code is doing, you're exposing it to a local network and anybody can start accessing it. 
you know, like I know plenty of red teamers that would go to, you know, Starbucks and coffee shops and Pete's coffees and all that stuff up in, you know, the Bay area and just wait for some folks from, you know, meta Twitter, um, you know, whatever the flavor of the week is to work from there and start doing some scans on those hosts just so they can try to figure out, Hey, okay, well, maybe there's some sort of uh, service that's being exposed. Let me turn that around. Let me use the contents of these web services that I'm hitting. See if it matches a project name. See if maybe there's a subdomain that's spun up on the, you know, the, the, the top level domain for that company, or if maybe there's an internal dev network, um, you know, maybe there's a way that I can find some sort of bug bounty or DNS enumeration that comes from it. And what people don't realize it, you don't need to just compromise that one thing. All you need to do is just find an extra puzzle piece. And the more puzzle pieces you have, the bigger picture you'll understand of the, um, you know, total layout and, and, and the posture of that company and the topology of the company. And now you're able to start drawing lines between all those little connected nodes just because you are able to find one piece of information out. So we understand the risk. That's what we've been trying to tell you, Mike. It's serious down there. We do dangerous stuff, man. This is shenanigans, foolishness, Nerf ball. You live a sweet little Nerfy life, sitting on your biscuit, never having to rescue. But how do we turn this into something where you can enable others? And this is where self-serviceability in my eyes comes into play. Um, because now, hey, we know that the risk is the firewall needs to be turned on. So if somebody needs to turn it off, maybe we can do something where we can make um, some sort of like, you know, on, on Mac OS, there's a, a management program called Monkey. Maybe we have a, a little self-service app where, you know, for a time, a certain allocation of time, we're allowing the developer to, you know, make certain adjustments to the firewall policy. You know, maybe we're just uh, disabling, you know, stealth mode. Maybe we're um, allowing incoming connections, but only for signed binaries, things like that. There's a few different, you know, approaches we can take there. Charles Proxy would be a great example. It's signed by the developer. Um, we can add it to the allow list uh, within the firewall and, you know, they'll now be unblocked. But it doesn't need to always be enabled or always running or always allowed. So, you know, you start to see how this approach takes it from, okay, well, now we have a risk. Now we have an enablement. What else can we do that with? And, and literally, I want you to take a couple minutes and, and sit there. What is one risk that you have identified within your business, within your business vertical, something, right? Um, Self-servicing access to data. Uh, maybe there's certain communications people shouldn't be able to see but other people should be able to um, take action on them. Maybe you don't want the raw communications to uh, you know, transfer different hands or be seen by different eyes, but you want that one to generate a subsequent message that's sanitized to somebody that then can action it. Now you can remove yourself from being a manual uh, validation or like a manual uh, step function within this process and automatically enable somebody else to take action on that sanitized message, right? So like you can see how this constantly happens. And when I was listening within Dichotomy of Leadership, you know, one of the chapters, he, he talked about um, sort of holding the line. And the story that they were sharing was how when they were in Ramadi, the SEAL teams used different communication frequencies uh, and different um, like keying mechanisms in order to communicate. So you would have somebody on the SEAL team need to communicate with somebody from the Army and the Marines. And what would happen? have to happen would be the seals would then communicate to TACOM who would then relay it to whichever branch needed to be communicated, who would then share it with whoever the forward uh, units are. Now, Jaco is, is no dummy, right? So he knew that, Hey, 
I need my team. And he held this line. I need my team to be able to communicate with everybody on the ground because it could be seconds that saves people's lives. And, you know, one of the things that they were discussing was that, you know, they were, uh, had a sniper's nest up on a, um, rooftop and, you know, some M1A2 Abrams tanks were crossing the bridge. They detonated some controlled charges to take down some trees so they could get better line of sight. And one of the tanks started shooting at them. Right. So that's what they called a blue on blue. And, you know, as soon as they drop down, um, behind some cover, what, what do they need to do? They need to tell whoever it is, Hey, you know, we're friendly. Stop firing at us. And had Jocko not held that line, what would have happened? You know, we'd probably have a couple more casualties, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, because he was able to and and he his team trusted him to make that call. Uh, you know, it's it's normally what they would do is they'd have somebody that's, you know, a comm specialist that would sit there and, hey, okay, you know, I, you, we need to talk to this person. We'll figure it out. We'll sw- swap the radio, rekey it, whatever we need to do. But, you know, in, in this situation, the, the teams were, you know, a little bit more subdivided. There's too many, not enough comms folks to go around. Makes sense, right? They, they took a risk of not being able to communicate fast enough and efficiently enough, and they turned it into enablement by having each one of the individual teams being able to communicate themselves. As a result, they were able to make the call and say, hey, cease fire. You know, there's friendlies over here. So, like, this is no joke when you think about, like, this same type of mindset is really something you can take into a life or death situation. And if you want to take it even, you know, just, okay, well, military is kind of extreme, you know, because I know that there's some, you know, naysayers out there. Well, what if we think about more of a, a real life situation? And I call this one the old man syndrome. The generation before ours, I always call it to be the generation of doers. There are people that would, you know, to me, always do the right thing for the right reason. And, you know, obviously, yeah, there's some bad apples. Don't get hung up on that piece. Get hung up on the fact that, and this older generation, it was just, they're different kinds of minds, you know? It's, you probably heard the saying if you've ever been on Instagram or TikTok, right? Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. So I'm talking about this generation of these strong men out there, right? And one time I remember seeing this car. It was going up a hill and it stalled in the middle of the road. And, you know, there's this older gentleman and, you know, he walked over from the sidewalk and was like, hey, you know, what's wrong? Uh, I can try pushing your car. A few other people came on over and and they're pushing the car together while the driver is trying to steer it to the side of the road. Now, mind you, it's up a hill. Now, the older man, you know, bless his heart and everything, you know, his mind was in the right spot. But he, he started to get winded because, remember, you're pushing up a hill and that piece is really important here. So, you know, to him, he saw a risk. He saw a car in the middle of the street that needed to get out of the flow of traffic. So he wanted to help, but he wasn't able to finish his commitment to help. And as a result, he started to let go of the car. And then the two other folks started to struggle. And, you know, somebody yelled over, hey, put the brakes on, put the brakes on. And then, you know, they were able to kind of recompose themselves. But despite his intent... You know, this is not somebody that you'd go up to and say, oh, I don't need your help. You know, I don't want your help. You're an older gentleman. You know, probably had to be in the 70s or 80s. You know, I'm way far away so I can see it happening, but I can't get there fast enough to to contribute. By the time I got up there, you know, they were already to the side of the road and everything. But, you know, what I'm thinking of is, well, how could we have reduced the risk of this man not being able to push the car, but still allow him to contribute? And my scenario that I ran through my head in a lot of different ways, it's like, well, what else could he have done? 
could have directed traffic. He could have been in the driver's seat steering the car. You know, he's a frail, you know, older man. So, you know, it would have been perfect for him. While the driver who was, you know, healthy age, you know, healthy composure, healthy posture, you know, would have been a better contributor trying to get this car out of the middle of the street. You know, it was a, <laughs> funny enough, it was a white Hummer H3. So while nobody wants to stop anybody from helping and contributing, because, you know, it is, it's hard to find people like that these days. How could we have redirected this man uh, in this scenario to be a contributor without increasing the risk, even though he thought he was decreasing it, right? So there's this fine balance in between everything that you need to sit there and you really need to think about. And, you know, you can apply this to, you know, Jocko's story from his book, you know, again, Dichotomy to Leadership. I highly recommend it because there's so many great, um, the flow of the book is, is just phenomenal. And I'll do a little quip on that right now. But it's like, you know, it gives a story um, of, of his time in deployment um, or, you know, in training or something. Then he puts the principle um, sort of down on paper and then he relates it to business. And that flow works so well. It makes it so easy for anybody, regardless of who the audience is, to be able to break it down, receive it and interpret it in a way that they can make it applicable. But like, you know, again, so we see this working in those types of scenarios we see this in your, your work, your day to day, regardless of where you are in the business. And we see this in the real world. So, you know, in the back of your mind, just keep thinking, how can you take a risk and how can you turn it into an enablement? So that's my challenge to you for the next week. You know, just get a you know scrap sheet of paper or something, write it down, you know, put down, hey, like here's a risk I identified. How can I turn this into something for somebody else? Now, take that and start selling that idea because now you're, you're addressing the business risk. You're turning into an enablement. People can start self-servicing things. You're solving problems. You, maybe you, there's a way for you to drive up revenue while decreasing the risk of, you know, data exposure, or maybe you're decreasing the risk of flawed financials. Maybe you're decreasing the risk of, you know, the, the, um, integrity of the product that you're trying to build. There's so many different ways you can apply this. Um, so, you know, please feel free to, you know, chime out, uh, tweet, Instagram, whichever one it is. I'm kind of here curious to hear some of your stories on how you're able to take, um, some of the risks and turn it into enablement. And with that, thanks for tuning in to this episode of plan B security with me, Mike McIntosh. <laughs>